If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it, turn with me to Exodus chapter 6. This morning, our text will be found in the 6th chapter of Exodus. We'll continue our study through the book of Exodus and the life of Moses. As you're turning, uh, this week I revisited a little biography that I have on the life of Amy Carmichael. Uh, She was born in 1867 and went on to serve as a missionary to India. After a few brief years in Japan, she arrived in South India, at the southern tip of India, in, uh, I guess it was 1895 when she uh, arrived there, never to leave. And she learned the language. She did itinerant evangelism with a band of of Indian Christian women. And she soon found herself responsible for discipling many uh, who came to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, in 1901, she settled in a region known as Donover. And she had become increasingly aware of the fact that there in that region, uh, many of the Indian children were dedicated to the gods by their parents and they became temple children, and they were subjected to all kinds of abuse, and and, uh, they lived in moral, spiritual danger, and that kind of thing. So Amy Carmichael made it her mission to rescue and raise these children from from that condition. And so the Donover Fellowship came into being in 1927. And Amy Carmichael was known affectionately as Amma, or Mother, She was the founder of the fellowship, and her work became well-known throughout the world because of her extensive writing. Uh, People volunteered, money and and support poured in. But in 1931, Amy Carmichael had a serious fall which kept her as an invalid for the rest of her life. And being confined to a bed of sickness was definitely not something that she had in mind. It was definitely not something that she had planned for. And yet, she didn't let that stop her in her effort uh, to do the work of the Lord. And so she continued to write. I think she wrote 16 more books uh, while confined to a bed of sickness. And remarkably, nearly 100 years later, the Donover Fellowship still continues today as an important ministry. Over the last century, there's no telling how many thousands upon thousands of children have been rescued from danger, brought into the love and care of of the home. Now, I want you to listen to something that Amy Carmichael wrote. She said this, pray for the courage of faith. Pray for the patience that waits and does not hurry on before God's leading. Pray for the love that cannot be tired out of loving whatever happens. God, give us a brave faith and a very tender love that counts nothing too much to endure for our Lord, crucified and risen. Now, even though things in her life didn't turn out quite the way that she had planned, in no way did that rock her world or, or squelch out her faith, but she just continued right on serving the Lord Jesus. Now, folks, things don't always turn out the way in life that we plan for them to. Uh, our plans are frequently subject to change. The longer that you and I live, the more we find out that life really is full of surprises. We often make our plans, and we forget the fact that life can turn on a dime. 
You think about a couple upon getting married. Maybe they dream of having a house and they dream of having a family only to discover through a very painful process that they can't have any children. That wasn't what they planned for. It wasn't what they signed up for. I think about a college student who works hard through school and just studies long hours to get good grades and have a good GPA only to graduate, move back home, and not be able to find a job. It's happened more than once. Oftentimes, life just doesn't go the way that we plan. And my point is, we make plans to learn that things oftentimes don't go according to our plan. Folks, do you realize that with God, in the will of God, and the plan of God, things always go according to plan. God always has a plan A, never a plan B. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that from our perspective, it will seem like things are going to plan. At least that's true for Moses, because God had called Moses to be the deliverer, to lead the Israelites up out of their bondage in Egypt. And so Moses goes in obedience to the call of God upon his life, only to discover that things get hard, and Pharaoh hardens his heart, and Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. And on top of that, Pharaoh actually makes matters worse for the Israelites, and he increases their bondage. He increases their affliction. They have to make bricks, but he doesn't let them have any straw. They've got to go out and gather their straw, too. And so they come to Moses and say, Moses, what in the world have you done? What kind of Savior are you? And so in Moses' mind, things were definitely not going according to plan. So that's where we pick up here in chapter 6. And I want to read, in fact, I want to back up just a couple of verses to verse 22 at the end of the fifth chapter, and we'll read on into chapter 6. Notice what the Scripture says. Then Moses turned to the Lord. That is, after the people come, after they've told him, you've made our condition worse. And Moses cries out to God and says, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to these people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. In other words, Moses is saying, things are not going according to the plan. But the Lord says to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant." Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Now, notice there from verse 6 through verse 8, 
where God says, I am, his covenant name, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. And sandwiched between those two reminders of, of his great person, there are seven I will statements where God states his intention in the form of promise. So he's reminding Moses, and Moses then is to remind the people who God is and what God has promised to do. And because of who he is, God will always come through on his promises. And aren't you grateful for that? You know, they say that a promise is only as good as the character of the promiser. When God makes a promise, it's sure and steadfast because of his perfect, righteous character. Moses, you think things are not going according to the plan? Let me remind you, I am the Lord. And because I am the Lord, I will deliver my people. And so, verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they didn't listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And so the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go up out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And we'll stop reading right there. I want to speak to you this morning from this subject, the plan, the power, and the promise of God. What is it that we need when we find ourselves sort of confused in life, when things don't necessarily seem to be going according to our plan? It's then that we need to be reminded of the plan of God, the power of God, and ultimately the promises of God. Because that's what Moses is being reminded of here. Uh, the Pro uh, Proverbs 19, verse 21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. In other words, man makes plans. Uh, we have all types of ideas and plans in our mind about how our life should go or what our life should look like. But ultimately, the writer of Proverbs reminds us that it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God doesn't have a plan A or a plan B or a plan C. He only has plan A. And so when things don't seem to be going according to plan from our perspective, that's when we need to keep our eyes firmly fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Moses, again, his arrival in Egypt, from his own limited perspective, things don't seem to be going according to the plan. But from God's perspective, they were right on schedule. And so there's some very important lessons that Moses learns here in this passage of Scripture. And these are some lessons that you and I need to learn too. Uh, notice with me, number one, how we must always anticipate difficulty in the plan of God. Did you know that? Uh, have you ever heard this statement? Expect the unexpected. When it comes to the plan of God, you and I can expect difficulty in life. And that's what Moses is experiencing in this fifth chapter. And he's expressing his confusion over his painful experience in verses 22 and 23. Now, keep in mind that the difficulty in the plan of God, it's never on God's end. 
That is, the difficulty is never with God to carry. God is not in heaven wringing his hands, wondering how he's going to work all of this out. No, the difficulty is not on his end, but rather the difficulty is on our end as a matter of our experience and our perspective. When Moses gets to Egypt, he's initially enthusiastic. The people initially respond. The elders of the people, they believe his word. He heads off to Pharaoh to deliver the announcement that God's intending for his people to be free. God's word to Pharaoh is, let my people go. Well, the Bible says that Pharaoh hardens his heart. He refuses to let the people of Israel go. And to make matters worse, he, he makes their situation worse. He increases their workload. And so the people, they come to Moses, and essentially they say, you've not helped our situation out one bit. Some savior you are. You've made matters worse. And so the blame then for their suffering is laid at Moses' feet. So notice the question that Moses is asking here in verse 22. He asks the question, why? Lord, why have you done evil to these people? Lord, why did you ever send me? So he's asking the why question. And, and by the way, the why question is often asked whenever our experience does not line up with our expectation. Whenever our expectation is one thing and then our experience is another thing, oftentimes that leads us to ask the why question in life. We become confused. We can get discouraged. We can find ourselves in the throes of disillusionment and that kind of thing. I don't know why it is, but often we live under the impression that just because we worship God, all of our problems, all of our disappointments must somehow be outside the will of God. Now, surely the plan of God doesn't involve difficulty. Surely the plan of God doesn't involve personal pain in my life. I don't know why it is that oftentimes we expect that, but that's often how we live. So much so that when painful circumstance comes our way, it's so much beyond our realm of expectation that we find ourselves becoming confused, discouraged, disappointed, disillusioned. Listen, God never said that a life of faith would be easy. In fact, Jesus said the opposite. He said those who carry a cross can expect discomfort. I think about the Apostle Paul. I believe the Apostle Paul was the greatest Christian who's ever lived. And yet Paul says that this was all part of the process, experiencing difficulty in the plan of God. Uh, in Acts chapter 14, the scripture talks about how certain Jews from Antioch, they came, persuaded the crowds, turned the crowds against Paul. They stoned him, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. <laughs> but when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up, entered the city. The next day, he goes on with Barnabas, after they preached the gospel, made many disciples, they return, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Now listen to this, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that it's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, Paul is saying, don't go through life with this expectation that life is always going to be carefree, trouble-free, pain-free, no, it's through much tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God. The, the road of discipleship is, is full of potholes. There are bumps along the way. There are obstacles. You'll face opposition. 
There's an enemy who opposes your faith, and he'll do everything that he can to come against you, to distract you, to discourage you, to disillusion you in life. And so we shouldn't be surprised here that Moses is asking this why question. I think that if we would be honest, all of us could say we've been there. We've asked that same question, why, Lord? And so that's the question he's asking, and then notice the problem that Moses is assuming. Here's the problem. He says in verse 23, ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Now listen to this. Here's his assumption. And you have not delivered your people at all. You're not doing anything. You're silent. In Moses' mind, the king of Egypt presented this insurmountable problem. He's the most powerful man in the world at the time. Now he's bound and determined to make life miserable for the people of Israel. I imagine at this moment, Moses is probably feeling lower than a snake's belly. He's probably feeling like the loneliest man in the world. I mean, think about his family. They weren't there with him. The people that he had been sent to lead, they didn't want anything to do with him. They're blaming him for their misery. I mean, at least he has Aaron, but from Moses' perspective, God hadn't done anything to deliver his people at all. And strange as it may seem, it was all part of the plan of God. Folks, do you realize that the best setting for God to do his most ideal work is when things are absolutely impossible? His ideal working conditions is when the situation seems absolutely hopeless, when the problems seem insurmountable, when there seems to be no way, when your back's against the wall and all you're staring at is the Red Sea in front of you, God operates and does the impossible, all for the sake of his glory. <laughs> These are his ideal working conditions. And so Moses is going to have to learn this. Why does God do it that way? It's so that he gets the glory, that's why. So that no flesh can ultimately glory in his presence so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, he tells the Corinthians, you consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what's lowly, despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh might glory in his presence. So that's the question Moses asks, the assumption that Moses has. And then notice the way that Moses is answered. I love this. As soon as you cross the threshold into chapter 6, I love what God says to his servant. Now you will see what I will do. Now that you've come to the end of yourself, now that you uh, are, are completely helpless in my presence, you realize just how hopeless the situation for the people ultimately is, now you're going to see what I will do to Pharaoh Moses. You're going to discover that what's impossible with man is always possible with God. And so Moses is having to come to grips with the fact that he is insufficient in himself to be the deliverer of the people. He's having to come to the end of himself, to the end of all of his resources, so that he can completely cast himself upon the power of divine omnipotence. 
And so he's at the point of despair here. He needs to be patient. He needs to keep right on doing what God had called him to do because God was still at work. And you know, we need to really be cautious about deciding whether something is God's will or not by how things are turning out at the present moment. Just because you find yourself in a situation of personal discomfort, when things don't seem to be going according to your plan, perhaps in your marriage, or perhaps in the life of one of your children, uh, just because things don't quite seem to be going according to your plan, they're where you work. Before you make a snap judgment in, in, in the haste of a moment, keep in mind the fact that God is at work oftentimes behind the scenes. And God, by the way, God's not interested in, in, in mushroom religion. You know what I'm talking about? A, a mushroom will spring up overnight. You have a lot of rain and humidity. You go to bed, you wake up the next morning, you look out in your yard, and you see these little mushrooms that just seem to have sprouted overnight. God's not interested in that kind of faith, mushroom faith. Here one second, gone the next, withering with the heat. No, instead, God takes the long way, and, and he's more interested in growing a mighty oak from a little acorn. That doesn't, a mighty oak doesn't grow overnight. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes different seasons. It takes the winds of adversity so that the roots of that oak push down deep into the soil. That's what God's interested in doing in your life and your faith. And his instrument of choice to do that will be the furnace. It will be adversity. It will be difficulty in the plan of God. And so here's the thing. You and I need to expect difficulty in the plan of God. Number two, we learn from this passage that we must always remain confident in the power of God. When things aren't necessarily going according to plan, from our perspective, we don't need to lose hope. We don't need to throw up our hands and give up. No, we simply need to remain confident in the power of God. God says to Moses, now you will see what I will do for Pharaoh, to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. That is, God is in complete control of the situation. Uh, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he wishes. God is sovereign, even over Pharaoh. And this mighty Pharaoh who seems to hold such power uh, and control over the people of God, he's going to be broken. His power's going to be broken. And God is going to deliver his people out of Pharaoh's grip just like God had promised all along. So God is on the throne. That's what he's essentially saying to Moses here. Moses, you need to remember that I am on the throne. When trouble comes your way, when things don't work out the way you planned, you can always be confident of the fact that God is in complete control. And so notice then that the focus of Moses is redirected because God says to Moses, see what I will do. Now imagine at this point, Moses has felt like a failure. Maybe he's embarrassed. He can't see beyond the immediate facts of the situation. But Notice how God really redirects Moses, his attention. He calls him to look away from himself, to look away from the present circumstance and look to the Lord. 
Because Moses needs to understand that God's plan is not accomplished by man's strength. It's always accomplished by God's own power. And he says to Moses in verse 2, I am the Lord. This is where Moses' eyes needed to be fixed. Not on the problems, not on the complaints of the people, not on the emotions of the situation. God says, I am the Lord. Moses, look to me. Keep in mind the one who's called you. Keep in mind the one who's revealed himself to you. And by the way, we need that same reminder in life, don't we? Because it's easy for us to become so fixated upon our situation and our struggles. Phil Riken says this about Exodus. He says that Exodus is a God-centered book with a God-centered message that teaches us to have a God-centered life. Whatever problems we have, whatever difficulties we face, the most important thing is to know who God is. That is, I've been called to place my faith and my trust in the one who says, I am the Lord. So that means there's trouble in the family. We don't know how to bring about peace. God says, I am the Lord. You look to me. When relationships are broken and marred, we don't know how they can be mended, God says, I am the Lord. You look to me. I mean, whenever things just don't seem to be going right, you're not certain how things are ever going to work out. Here's what God says to us. I am the Lord. You need to look to me. Y'all remember that little storybook, uh, Alexander and the Terrible, No Good, Very Bad, Horrible Day, or something like that? Judith Vorst, I think, was the author of that little storybook. And, and I remember uh, Anita reading it to the kids when they were little. Been around for a long time. But the way that the storybook goes, this little boy named Alexander, I mean, from the moment that he wakes up, before he puts his feet on the floor, his day is off to a rotten start. You know, he realizes that he slept through the night, forgot to spit his bubble gum out, and he's got gum all in his hair. Gets downstairs, and, you know, his older brother went through the cereal box and got the toy before he could. On his way to school, his mom doesn't listen to his complaints about this, that, and the other. Goes to school, draws a picture of an invisible castle, and the teacher doesn't buy it and fusses at him, and Alexander gets it. It's just one thing right after the other. All the way up to that night when he's going to bed. His favorite pajama pants are dirty. He can't wear his favorite pajamas to bed. The cat doesn't want to go to bed and sleep, curl up at the bottom. It's just a horrible, rotten, no good, very bad day. Now, it's interesting, throughout the book, Alexander uh, has this idea that if he could just move to Australia, then he would have good days, that nobody in Australia has bad days. <laughs> You ever just sort of had that mentality? Things don't go according to plan in your life. And so you throw your hands up in complete despair. Listen, you look away from the pain of the circumstance. You look away from the frustration of the immediate, and you get your eyes firmly fixed on the Lord Jesus. Amen. That's what God is reminding Moses of here. So his focus is redirected. Uh, notice how the name of God is reiterated or reemphasized. Remember back in chapter 3 at the burning bush where God reveals his name to Moses? I am that I am. The covenant name of God is revealed to Moses, Yahweh. And so once more the Lord reminds Moses here in verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name the Lord I did not make myself known to them. Now, the word uh, used for God Almighty there, it's El Shaddai. 
It's the name El Shaddai. God is saying that the patriarchs, they knew me as El Shaddai, which means the God who overshadows, the God who protects his own, the God who promises, the God who makes a promise. But he says, to you, Moses, I've revealed my name, I am, Yahweh. And you're going to discover that I am the God who keeps my promise. They knew me as a promise maker. Because, by the way, you you remember how God promises Abraham that he's going to be the father of a great nation. Abraham didn't see that in his own lifetime. He saw it through the eyes of faith, but he didn't see it in reality. Here, Moses is being reminded of who God is, and he's being reminded of God's great faithfulness as not just one who makes promises, but one who keeps promises, the one who keeps his word, the I am that I am. What an awesome thought, men and women. You need to be reminded of that when you're discouraged. You need to be reminded of that, that the God who makes promises is the same God who keeps those promises. He does not go back on his word. So the focus of Moses then is redirected. The name of God is reemphasized. And then notice how the covenant with Israel is remembered. Even though Israel's in bondage here, God says in verse 5, I have heard their groaning and I have remembered my covenant. And the fact that God has remembered, that does not imply that he had forgotten. No, the language means that now it is time for God to act in real time and upon the stage of human history. Israel had been in bondage for more than 400 years. The heavens seemed silent, as it were. But that doesn't mean that God had forgotten the promises that he had made to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, and their descendants. No. The time had just not yet come on God's calendar for him to act upon the stage of human history. That did not negate, by the way, his silence did not negate his promises. The same thing's going to be true later on in Israel's history where redemptive history as it, as it continues and God makes promises uh, through the prophets of the Messiah who's going to come. By the time you get to the end of Malachi, do you know there's going to be 400 long silent years between Old Testament and New Testament? Had God forgotten his promises to send a Savior to redeem the world? Did he forget all of that? Was God preoccupied somewhere else so much so that he had forgotten to honor his work? No, it just wasn't time for God to act yet upon the stage of human history. But Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 that in the fullness of time, at just the right time on God's calendar, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them which are under the law. And listen, just because it seems like the heavens may be silent in our generation does not mean that God has forgotten his promises. He is still saving men and women who repent of their sin and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is still building his church. And once more, God is going to act upon the stage of human history when Jesus Christ returns for his church. Mark my words, God keeps his promises. So the covenant then is remembered. We need to remember all of this oftentimes when things just don't seem to be going according to plan. So we can expect difficulty in the plan of God. We need to always remain confident in the power of God. Now notice one last thing here. 
we must place our trust in the promises of God. Firmly fix your faith. Place your trust, all of your confidence, in the promises of God. Because notice what God tells Moses to do. Uh, He says, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So he's saying, Moses, remind my people of my promise. Uh, He's reminding Moses both of his person and his promise. And he makes seven promises here, bracketed in between his person. God says, I am the Lord. And here's his sevenfold promise. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. That's a promised sandwich right there. It's interesting, the number seven is the number of completion. It's the divine number. And so this is God's way of saying that their redemption is is promised, but it's perfect. It's going to come to pass because of the one who's making the promise. God says, I am the Lord. Essentially, he's saying, because I am, you can know that I will. That's a good reminder, isn't it? Think of these as the seven I wills of salvation. God wants his people to understand that the answer to their problems was found in him alone. And each aspect of their salvation depended upon his person and his promise. And notice how it begins and it ends with God. Their redemption begins with God because it all comes from his grace. And it's going to end with God because it will all be for his glory. And all of the obstacles and all of the difficulties that show up in between will be handled because he is the Lord. And folks, I'm telling you, the promises of God flow from his person. Jesus said the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He promises to save us because he is our Savior. He promises to deliver us because he is our deliverer. He promises to rule us because he is our ruler. He promises to provide for us because he is our provider. When God says he will do something, it's sure and steadfast. Nothing can keep it from coming to pass. In fact, you could sort of distill each of these promises into three categories. There's the promise of rescue, where God says, I will bring you out, I will deliver you from slavery, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, which by the way, this goes far beyond what's going to happen in the Exodus, because this is pointing to a much greater Exodus than the one that Moses is going to lead. This is pointing ultimately to the Exodus that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, that he's going to lead when he's leading sinners out of the bondage of sin and death. And how does he do it? He does it with arms that are outstretched upon a cross. And so there's the promise of rescue. Uh, There's the promise of relationship. God says, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You've not been saved just you know, to be rescued from bondage. No, you've been saved that you might have a relationship with the God who loves you, who calls you by name. 
In addition to the promise of rescue and relationship, notice that there's the promise of reward where God says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give. I will give it to you for a possession. So there's, there's a, this future aspect then to their salvation that they needed to be reminded of. God's plan in their salvation and redemption was not to just simply set them free from their affliction in Egypt. No, he's going to do that, but he wants to bring them in to a land of blessing. You know, you've been saved not to just be forgiven of your sin, but to be brought into blessing. What, what blessing is ours in Jesus Christ? Well, you can read all about it in Ephesians chapter 1. You can read all about the treasures that are yours in Jesus Christ as a believer. Hell, salvation is not just a get out of hell free card. No, thank God he saved me and rescued me from hell, but he's given me so much more. He's given me himself. He's given me great and precious promises so that through them we might become partakers of the divine nature. That's what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. That is, all of the promises of God find their ultimate answer, affirmative answer in the unique person of God's own Son. And that's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Now here's the thing. Moses takes this message to the people. But if you look at verse 9, Notice, Moses speaks these words to the people, but they didn't listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Have you ever been so discouraged when things didn't go according to some plan that maybe you had for your own life, whatever, you fill in the blank. Have you ever been so discouraged that those that came to you, maybe they came with a Bible verse, maybe they came to remind you of a promise, you appreciated their efforts, but you really ultimately weren't interested in what they had to say because you couldn't get past the pain of the present situation. You ever been there? Where people come up and they try to do their very, very best to try to give you some type of comfort, some type of encouragement, but it just sounds like empty platitudes, and that's not really what you're interested in in that moment when you're hurting. Sometimes I kind of feel that way week in and week out as a gospel preacher. Where you're reminding people on a regular basis of the promises of God and the hope that they have in Christ and you're reminding people the truth of God's word but man, sometimes folks just can't get past the pain of whatever situation that they're dealing with. And they appreciate the sentiment but the pain, it seems a little bit more louder than the message of the preacher. You ever been there? I don't know about you, but I've been there in my life. Someone that maybe you're witnessing to, that you have so wanted to see come to faith in Jesus Christ, and as you are so excited about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and what Jesus can do in the life of a person, it seems like they're not really interested or excited about it. They might seem to be listening to you when you share, but maybe they politely change the subject. They avoid the issue. In fact, I had someone just this week telling me that they were dealing with that in, in, with a family member that they were so wanting to witness to, but it seems like every time the opportunity would arise for them to bring up the gospel and share the gospel, their loved one would change the subject. Surprises us to find out that a person cannot be excited to hear the news of what God has done in the person of his son. 
Why is that the case? Well, the answer is, I think, is there in verse 9. They didn't listen because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. In other words, they were enslaved. Their chains kept them from rejoicing. You can't rejoice when you're in shackles. Sin locks a person up in prison that he can't break free from. He has no hope in himself. He can't see past the bars. He can't save himself. He won't come to God on his own. His only hope of salvation is for God to come and set him free. He has to break those chains. And aren't you glad that he's a chain breaker? Amen. By the way, let me come back and, and, and just sort of change what I said a little bit differently. You can rejoice when you're in shackles, when you know that you're in Jesus Christ because Paul was in shackles in the Philippian jail, but he could rejoice in his chains. You don't know why he could rejoice in his chains? Because he knew that in Jesus Christ he had been set free. It didn't matter what his outward circumstances told him or what his emotions felt in that moment. He knew that ultimately his hope was found in Jesus. And when your hope is in Jesus, you can rejoice even when things don't go according to your plan in life. So this is going to be a great stage upon which God is going to show himself strong and mighty on behalf of his people. Two things by way of closing application and then we're through. Two things to remember. First, when it comes to our confusion and frustration, when things don't go according to plan, my plan, your plan, God always says, I am. And that needs to be my focus. That needs to be where my attention ultimately is, is found upon the God who saved me and calls me his own, no matter how confused and frustrated I may be in a given moment in life. And then the second thing, when it comes to our need for salvation, God always says, I will. Aren't you grateful for that? Someone says, Pastor, I'm just not so sure that the Lord can save me. You don't know what I've done, where I've been, how I've lived, how I've acted. You don't think God knows that? He specializes in taking basket cases like Moses and doing miraculous things through their life. When it comes to your need for salvation, God always says, I will. I am, I will. I am, I will. And that's what we need to remember, folks, when things don't go according to plan. You know, think about John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 11. Remember John? He's shut up in Herod's prison. He's discouraged. He's fearful. Things are not going according to plan by way of his own thinking, and so he, he sends two of his disciples to Jesus with this question. Are you the one who has come, or should we look for someone else? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the Savior of the world, or should we look for someone else? And Jesus answers those two disciples and says, you go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news of the gospel preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. In other words, 
Jesus addresses his doubts and fears by reminding John that he is the one whose works bear witness to his person. Jesus says, I am and I will. I am and I will. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? Listen, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, here's what he has to say to you this morning. I am and I will. He bled and died for you, for your sin. My sin took Jesus all the way to the cross. And with arms outstretched, Jesus bled and died and suffered so that sinners like me and you could be saved and forgiven, redeemed, brought out of the bondage and the tyranny of sin and brought into the blessing of eternal life. Aren't you grateful that he's a God who makes promises and keeps promises? When things don't seem to be going according to plan, listen, let's, let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, the I am who says I will. Heads bowed and eyes closed as we sing here in just a few moments. If you have never been saved, what's keeping you from coming to Jesus this morning? Would you come to Jesus? Just come to Jesus and say, Lord, I confess my sin and my need for you and my need for salvation. And I believe that you died for me and that you rose again from the dead. I confess you as my Savior and Lord. Or you're a believer, as most of us in the room are. But you'd say, you know, things just haven't necessarily been going according to plan from my perspective. And I've been discouraged by that. I found myself confused, frustrated. Be encouraged, friend, that God says, I am and I will. And keep your eyes fixed upon him. Even when your situation seems painful, God would want you to look to him, to his face. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Lord, I'm so thankful for your promises and that you're a promise keeper and you're a promise maker. Because you are I am, you say I will. Israel needed to be reminded of this. Lord, I need to be reminded of this every day in my life. I need to hear it over and over and over again when I find myself, Lord, being tormented by emotion, circumstance. Lord, we look to you, and you are our hope, and you are our strength, our salvation, and our song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.